Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Today is the last installment of a multi-part sermon here at the end of the letter to the Galatians. Hard to believe we're coming to the end of it, right? Uh, But we're going to do like we do every Sunday. We're going to read Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will now look at verse 11. Paul writes, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that today our hearts and minds will be reminded of the importance and the centrality of the gospel of grace. In a very real sense, that is what this entire letter has been about. And I pray, Lord, that we will see its significance again as we conclude that we will be reminded that you are our only hope, that you are all we have, that if our hope strays or or goes to any other thing, any other action, act of obedience, lifestyle, choices, whatever the case may be, Lord, that we have gone off into the Galatian era. And I pray that you'll protect us from that. And this morning, even that you would convict us if that has happened, if there's anyone in this room whose hope has strayed into another area, bring us back. Help us to see it, to repent of it, to be committed to you no matter what. You alone, Jesus, are our hope. Please drive that thought home today. Spirit, help us apply your word, we ask. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we have come now to the end of Galatians. Today we're going to finish the text of Galatians, and then um, we'll come back next week. Wow, I was way off on my slides, wasn't I? There we go. We'll come back uh, next week and conclude the entire series, which will, by next Sunday, have taken us exactly one year and six months to complete. We started on September 11, 2016, and if we finish next Sunday, we will be March 11, 2016, so one year, six months, which kind of fits the monk part of me. For any of you who like monk, the TV show, like that's kind of, I got a little bit of monk in me. Uh, It's a nice round exact number, and that makes me happy. But first, we have to finish the text. Um, As I said to you a few weeks ago, my concern for us as we were approaching the conclusion of the letter here was that we would begin to sort of tune out a bit because it is a conclusion of a letter. And I said that without question, the two most commonly ignored, least studied parts of any 
epistle have to be the introduction and conclusion to those uh, letters. And the reason for that, I said, at least my guess is, is that it's because of how repetitive and formulaic those parts tend to be. And so because we've read them so many times, because we've studied them perhaps some point, at some point in the past, we see them again and we just sort of brush right past them. We don't even really think about it. We don't even look at them or try to understand them in each individual book. But if you've been with us through these past three sermons and now today, then you know that Paul's comments here at the end of Galatians are anything but formulaic and repetitive. Uh, In fact, this has been a very meaty conclusion, full of doctrine, full of application for us. Uh, Paul is not only recapping some of the major components of his argument throughout the letter, but he's really teaching as well. In a way, uh, he's trying to sort of lay out both his heart and his doctrine for the, the Galatians to see. And so having exposed the false teachers in the first few verses, 11 through 13, their methods, their motives, uh, in verse 14, he begins to express his own heart. And last Sunday, we saw Paul affirm that he has nothing to boast in, he says here, except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The false teachers are trying to boast in the flesh, literally, of the Galatians. Their whole goal is just to get them circumcised. As long as they can get them circumcised, they can go home and tell everyone, hey, look, we got all these people circumcised. This is great, and that'll be their boast. That'll be their glory. Uh, That's not Paul's approach. In the end, even if every single one of the Galatians were to say, you know what, Paul's gospel is true. These false teachers are, are liars, and they, you know, they rejected them completely. Even then, Paul recognizes he wouldn't get the credit, right? It's not, it's not his glory to get. They're not his trophies that he can walk around and point to and say, look how great I am. His only boast, the only thing he has to glory in is something that in Paul's day is actually repulsive to everyone around him, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. And I didn't say this last week, but I hope you recognize that when he talks about the cross here, they boast in it. He's not meaning the actual wood, right? Okay. He's not talking about the object as if he's Catholic and he needs to go worship something somewhere. What he's referring to is what it symbolizes. And that is the fact that on the cross, Jesus became our curse so that we could be forgiven, redeemed, and justified. So this is Paul's boast. This is Paul's glory. And that cross, he says here, also serves as a personal line of demarcation for him. Because when he turned in faith to Christ, He died to the world, and the world died to him. The old Paul ended, a new Paul was born, everything changed. And as we ended last time here in verse 15, you see Paul making reference to this, not just in his own personal life, but from the larger perspective of God's plan for this world, how he's working systemically. Um, You know, in the old system, that's gone now. In the old system, the law mattered, circumcision mattered, but all of that's gone now. Those dividing walls between people are gone Now, because of Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's just a new creation, that new creation being salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That new system being life in the spirit, not life by according to the flesh. So as we pick up here then one final time in verse 16, you see Paul continuing to address the Galatians on this very point. Here in verse 16, he says, And as for all of you who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. Now, there's a couple of things here we need to clarify before we can really understand it. Um, And so we'll take them in order. First, what does Paul mean by, and as for all who walk by this rule? Um, What 
rule are you talking about, Paul? What do you, what do you mean here by this? Well, let's start just by understanding the word itself. The word here has both a literal and a symbolic meaning. And literally, it refers to a measuring rod or a stick, a stake that a builder or a carpenter might use to make sure things are straight. So think of, a, of some builders who are going out to build a house, and they would take sticks and put them at the four corners of where they want the house to go and have a string tie between them just so they can know what's inbounds and what's out of bounds for the house. We want to build the house inside the strings. We don't want to build outside the strings. Those stakes are the rule for the house. Or in a similar way, those same sticks would also be used as measuring tapes. So if you know your stick is, you know, three feet long, maybe put some notches in it so you can measure things. If you want to go up to something and see how big it is, you just lay out the sticks, see how big. Okay, great. I figured out this wall is this long, this piece of furniture is this long, whatever the case may be. So in the hands of a craftsman, the word referred to a tool. But symbolically, it became... Uh, it was used to refer to a rule or a standard or some kind of a principle that you could live or act by, um, something that could serve as the measurement of one's life. So in this way, you know, this is something you could use perhaps to judge whether or not your life was kind of lived in the bounds of whatever principle you wanted to to view or maybe out of the bounds of that thing. And as Paul uses it here, he's clearly using it in this symbolic sense to refer to this new system that he just described in verse 15, the measurement, the principle, uh, the rule that you need to think about as you're thinking about how God works in this world today, how he saves people, how people are made right with him. It's not the law of Moses anymore. Now instead, it's not certain, it's, it, now it's faith in Christ's death on the cross for you. This is now the new principle, the new measurement, the new rule. And I'll say this now so that I can come back to it again later and kind of make a similar comment in just a moment. But this is a really interesting word choice here because this word can also be translated as law. Um, so it's law, principle, rule. These are related words or ideas. And I get it that in English, we only have one word for law. When I talk about a law, I talk about you know, the Old Testament law or Modern law, we just keep using the word law, and it sort of refers to all these different things. We only have one word, but in Greek, there were multiple words for this. And this is not the word that Paul would normally use if he was referring to the Old Testament law. Whenever he's talking about the Old Testament law, he uses a different word. Yet, that doesn't change the fact that this word he uses here can be translated as law. So if you think about it, Paul almost seems to be like poking the false teachers a little bit here. He's poking the false teachers and those who would maybe follow along with them who have bought into their system saying, oh yeah, you've got a law? Guess what? I've got a law too. Our law is a little different than your law though because if you walk, if you live your life by that old law, you will not find acceptance before God. However, if you walk by this new law, this new creation, what God is now doing in and through Jesus Christ, you will be accepted by God. You will have peace and mercy upon you. And those aren't insignificant terms when he uses them here because these are words of salvation. I mean, just think about, just think about peace 
for a moment. One of my favorite um, juxtapositions of words in the New Testament is the word play that goes on between Romans 1 and Romans chapter 5. So if you're familiar with that passage at all, in Romans 1, it's like Paul's in court. He's the prosecuting attorney, and he's getting ready to lay out his case against all of humanity. And in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And then he goes on to make his case. So he's already said it. Everyone's under God's wrath because of sin. And now here's the case. The rest of chapter one, all of chapter two, and about you know two-thirds of chapter three are him just pounding away at this idea that we are sinners. And he, there, toward the end of that argument in chapter three, a very famous section, he begins to conclude by saying, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God, and so on and so forth. This is why God's wrath is against us, he says. But then in chapter 3, verse 21, he begins to present the gospel. And he begins to explain that now you can be made right with God, justified by faith alone through God's grace. And so for the rest of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, he's, he's explaining that salvation is now by grace through faith. And having laid out that argument now of the gospel from 321 to 425, he begins chapter 5 by saying this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And by peace here, he means the end of hostilities. Okay, Before we were at war, now we have peace. Before we were against one another, now we are together. And so, you know, in 118... We're under his wrath. Because of the gospel, by the time you get to chapter 5, verse 1, we're now at peace. And it's that same kind of peace that Paul is talking about here in Galatians 6. He's not talking about just some like good feeling of confidence you might get. No, no, no. He means you now have peace, okay? Because you're under that new system, you now have peace with God. So peace be upon you. The hostilities between you and God because of your sin have been removed. And not only peace, you also have mercy. Because never forget this. I mean, you know it, but it becomes so trite that we don't think about it. Salvation is an act of mercy. Mercy is when you do not get something that you do deserve. And what did we deserve? We deserve punishment. We deserve the hostilities. We deserve the wrath. But we didn't get it. We didn't get it because if we walk, if we live our lives by this new rule, our faith in Christ alone, the gospel of grace alone, we have peace and mercy upon us. And he says here, upon the Israel of God. I told you a moment ago there was a couple of things we needed to clarify. The word rule was one of them. Here's your second one. You know, who or what is the Israel of God? What, what is he referring to here? Well, this is a very complicated question, but I'll try to simplify it as best I can. Basically, every option for interpreting this falls under two kind of general headings, and it centers around whether or not you see the Israel of God here as being a synonym for the people who walk by this rule, or you see it as being separate from the people who walk by this rule. So let me explain that. Okay, if, if the Israel of God here is a synonym, same thing as the people who walk by this rule, then what Paul is doing here is he's using a repetitive rhetorical device just to reference all believers. 
Okay, he's just talking about all believers here. He's effectively saying that all believers constitute the Israel of God. He, he's just renaming them by this new term. Okay, hold that for just a moment. On the other hand, if the Israel of God represents a completely separate group from those who walk by this rule, then Paul is bringing up a new idea or concept right here at the very end of this letter. Okay, something new for us that we haven't really seen before. And this can go in multiple directions. The people who are on this side of the, the, the fence, for example, uh, some people who think it's separate say, okay, there's two different groups of Jews you can look at. There's Jews who are true believers in Jesus. They're the Israel of God versus Jews who aren't believers in Jesus. They're the Israel of the earth, I guess. I don't know what the opposite of the Israel of God would be in this context. But anyway, so there's some other Israels. So you got two different Israels, for example, or others think... He's just sort of offering a wish or a hope of salvation on all of his kinsmen, all of uh, the Jewish people, just generally speaking. And there's a number of different interpretations that you'll read if you go out and study this that will fall under this separate category. But I'm not going to spend any time on those because I don't think this is the right, right approach. I don't think it's the right interpretation here. I don't think he's talking about a separate group. I mean, for goodness sake, has he not just spent the entire letter trying to argue that the two groups are separate, are, are, are no longer separated, they're now one in Christ? Hasn't he spent the entire letter trying to show that the dividing wall that was between those groups has gone, and now that we are one in Jesus? So if, if that's the case, then why would he all of a sudden throw that dividing wall back up and talk about two different groups here at the very end without warning. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't fit the overall message of Galatians, nor does it fit in the flow of his argument. So I see no theological, textual, or even contextual reason to believe that he's referring to some kind of a separate group here. I think the first option is correct, that this is a synonym for all of those who are walking by this rule of this new creation, the ones that peace and mercy are upon, he says here, I think he's calling them the Israel of God. Now, this weirds some people out a little bit because sometimes I think people take that statement and they try to do things with it that aren't really warranted by the scriptures, particularly not by this particular context here. And if I could just, again, it's so big and complicated, I don't want to spend a ton of time. If I could simply summarize what I think is a correct way of approaching this so that you can understand it well, I think all Paul is doing here is he's saying that those who walk by this new rule of salvation, of faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, it's these people who are the true people of God. It's just that simple. It's these people who are the true people of God. We said, well, why then would Paul word it like this? Why didn't he just say people of God instead of the Israel of God? What would be his, his motivation here? Well, if I had to guess, personally, just based on Paul's approach in the letter, the way he's handled things, even the way he's kind of handled some things in this specific uh, paragraph that we're in right now, I think he says it this way to poke the false teachers one more time <laughs> because they have a very nationalistic view of salvation. They, they think salvation is tied to you being a part of the nation of Israel. Whether you're born that way or you become a proselyte, you become circumcised and you join in with them that way, whatever. And I think that Paul's taking one last shot at that mentality by redefining, in a sense, what it even means to be Israel. The Israel of God, the people of God, those are the ones who really walk by this rule. So I think he's poking the false teachers a couple of times in this one verse, kind of like a final shot across the bow before he ends. He just letting him have it just one, one last time. And he then concludes with a couple of comments here. 
Uh, He references his own sacrifice for the gospel from now on. Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You know, the false teachers wanted everyone to get a mark, right? The mark of circumcision. He's like, I I got some marks for you. I, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about Paul, a guy who has been beaten repeatedly for his preaching of the gospel, a guy who was stoned here in Galatia. I mean, he, some of the people he's writing to could have taken part in his stoning. You realize that? Like, he, he might be talking to us like a crowd who understands the marks he bears. He's been shipwrecked. He has borne all kinds of hardships for the name of Jesus. He literally, literally bears on his body, his arms, his legs, his head, who knows, the marks of Jesus. He has suffered for this gospel. So it's almost like he's looking at him and going, really? Don't mess with me. You know, don't mess with me, people. Look, look at what I've suffered. Look at what I, you think I'm just doing this for fun. You think I'm doing this to build myself up. You think I'm doing this because it's, it's pleasant for me. Look at me, right? Like, I, I think he's just like drawing attention to what he's gone through. And then he ends with his standard conclusion. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And, and, and as you know, that's, you know, that's what this has all been about. All of this, um, it's about the grace of God in and through Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of this letter, Paul has been concerned about protecting the gospel of grace. How many times have we said gospel of grace over the year and a half of studying this book together? I mean, the message of the false teachers is that salvation is something you can achieve or at least play a part in in some way, shape, or form, whether that's big or small, through your actions. It is a Jesus and gospel. Jesus and the law. Jesus and circumcision. Jesus and whatever, fill in the blank. It's a Jesus and gospel. And Paul has been taking the entire letter to say, no. (laughs) There is no Jesus and gospel. There's a Jesus gospel, a grace gospel, but no Jesus and gospel. Biblically speaking, Jesus and is a lie. And that's why Paul's language at the beginning of this letter was some of the strongest, the severest you find anywhere in the New Testament. I would remind you of it by reading it. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Listen, he brought it up. You're deserting the one who calls you by grace and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And I've said it repeatedly, and I will say it again because we need to hear it. Remember how that is literally translated there. Let the person who's preaching to you any gospel different than the one I preached to you be damned to hell for all eternity. I say that not in a profane way, but in a theological way, because this is his message to them. You don't find this strong of language used anywhere else. Let them be damned to hell for all eternity. They deserve it for distorting the gospel, the gospel of grace by adding anything to that. 
And it really is that simple, right? Either salvation is holy of God, completely an act of grace, him doing everything start to finish, or we play a part in it. Whether that part is small or large in our minds, in our system, it doesn't really matter. It's one or the other. Either God does everything or we help. You, you can't have it both ways. Now, I grew up in a church that taught me that I played a part. Sure, I mean, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and you had to believe that. And uh, you had to repent, and you had to have faith, and, you know, all these things. But what was really being taught was that not only did all those things have to be true, but I also had to, li- had to live a certain way in order to be worthy of salvation. I either had to do or not do A, B, or C, whatever the case may be. And if I did A, B, or C, then I was in trouble literally on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but that was a Galatian gospel heresy. It was heresy, what I was taught as a kid. Jesus and I've seen this firsthand, and I know many of you have too. Many of you in this room may have grown up in churches where effectively you were taught a Jesus and gospel. Hey, it's Jesus and be a good boy. Jesus and be a good girl. Jesus and don't do drugs. (laughs) Jesus and go to church. Jesus and whatever, doesn't matter, good, bad. It's not that those things that you were taught are in and of themselves wrong. Don't do drugs, okay? Kids, don't do drugs. Um, No, that's fine. But if those things become a part of the gospel, you've got a problem. That's, that's the issue here. So, so this is why Galatians will always be relevant and applicable for us as believers and for us as a church, because we can never stop defending the gospel of grace, ever. You can never stop defending that. You can never stop believing that. You can never stop holding to that because it is the only true gospel. And you either stake your eternal destiny on that or you don't. You either stake it on Jesus alone or it's Jesus plus something else. Um, So what's your hope this morning, right? (laughs) What are you trusting in? I, I think of that question. If you've ever been through any kind of like evangelism training, you may have heard something like this. I know I did. The question was, you know, talking to somebody, you say, listen, imagine you were to die today, stand before God, and he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? It's actually a very good question. You know, imagine you're driving home today, you get hit by a car, another car, you die. And you find yourself standing there face to face with God, and he says to you, Why? Why should I let you into heaven? What's your answer? What's your answer here? If your answer is anything other than all I have is Christ, and if, if his death isn't enough to pay for my sins, I have no hope. If, that, if you had any other answer go through your mind than something like that, I have real concerns for your soul. I've been a good person. No, (laughs) no, no, that's not going to cut it. My family, no, no, not going to cut it. Jesus and anything is a false gospel. Jesus and anything is a false gospel. Is that clear? Jesus and anything is a false gospel. And the person who believes that will be 
condemned to hell for all eternity. So I tell you and I plead with you and remind you from Paul's letter here to the Galatians, trust only, only in the grace of God shown to you in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Don't don't put your hope anywhere else. Don't spread it out to any other things. He alone is enough for your sins or you're going to have to go to a whole other system. He alone has to be enough. So so much so that if you're wrong about Jesus, you've lost everything. You had no backup plan, none. So stay with Jesus. Trust him alone. Abandon every other hope. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, he will not disappoint you. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, our hearts are so prone to wander, even at the very core of our faith. We are like like Paul in, in Philippians 3, who we're tempted to rebuild a righteousness of our own and to think that somehow you accept us or want us or love us because of our actions or what we do or what we don't do. But we are reminded this morning that Salvation is by grace alone, your loving kindness to us alone, or it's another gospel we're trusting. There is no and attached to Jesus. It's either his death is sufficient or it's not. Either you have loved us with an eternal love or you haven't. We either trust that or we don't. And Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would trust that. I pray that if our hearts have strayed and our hope has been kind of spread maybe to other things, ourselves, our actions, our choices, our obedience, it doesn't matter. That you would remind us of that, show us that, convict us of that, and draw our faith back to you in a single-minded kind of way so that if we're wrong about you, we're wrong about everything. May we be that focused on you. And I pray, Lord, for anyone in this room who, who right now is not confident of that, who doesn't know where their hope lies or when they think about it as just in the few moments we've had here at the end to talk like this, that they're recognizing maybe their faith is in other things, in themselves, or who knows what. Spirit, open their eyes. Give them faith to to believe, eyes to see the truth of Jesus crucified for them, bearing their sins, taking their penalty, and giving us peace with you. May that be our hope, our joy as we walk out of here today. You are enough. Jesus, you are enough. Thank you for your goodness to us and for dying for us. Our confidence is in you, and we are confident in you. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.